This is an ABC podcast. So I think there's this perception that teenagers have because they know that the phone is always there, that if you don't answer me immediately, you don't care about me. So therefore, I need to have my phone by my side at all times because my friend might need me. And then if you didn't answer in the next sort of two seconds, they would devalue the friendship. Have you tried talking to your teenager while they're glued to their phone? Impossible, right? That device can, and does, go everywhere with them, from the classroom to the bedroom and, yes, even the toilet. There's no argument. Phones are fantastic for a range of things. But who knows what or who they're accessing while they're glued to it. Hello, I'm Maggie Dent, and in this Parental as Anything, we're going to come up with some ways to help your teenager navigate the risks that come with having a smartphone. Growing up, what kind of phone did your family have? (laughs) Do you remember? The landline that sat on the kitchen bench? Or the one that was stuck to the wall with the long curly lead? Maybe you were lucky and you had a hand-held one. Wow, that was really innovative. Did you actually have to book a time in to use the phone so you could call your friends? Today... Most phones don't even have a landline. It's all about the smartphone and they enable our teens to be connected with friends or even strangers 24-7. Dr Jenny Mansberg is a GP and co-author of The New Teen Age, a book which looks at what teenagers are up against on those devices. Jenny, can you talk me through some of the challenges that smartphones throw up for our teens? Yeah, so I think, Maggie, a lot of this is stuff that you deal with. So we know that teenagers are primed to underplay risk and and sort of not really get risk and also to really highly value their peers. So we know that that's the way their brains work. When you couple that with a device that is basically a camera and a permanent recorder of their really stupidest moves, that is a bit of a problem. And then, you know, there's the the thing about sleep. So we know that only 50% of Australians at best get enough sleep, teenagers, and the phones are definitely big contributors to that. So all in all, it's not an awesome combination, having said all of which, it's like it's reality, right? We're all addicted to our phones. Our kids are addicted to their phones. So rather than trying to fight it and say, right, ban the phone, which is what a lot of my patients like to do, I think we've just got to get the best out of it. It's really good that they're staying connected. It's really good that they've got access to high quality information at the tip of their their fingers. But we've just got to manage it well so that it's not impeding on their sleep and that it's not going to actually KO their reputation in a really bad snap decision. And, of course, we can't control what content they see, can we? They are seeking more autonomy and independence. However, we know that some of the things that they might see or witness online, they would never have seen before they had a smartphone. So, again, it's that educating them how to become responsible digital citizens rather than banning them. Would you agree? 
A hundred percent. And and your language is what I love. So we're educating them collaboratively. And I think a lot of us can do the do as I say, not as I do thing, which is really unhelpful in general, but <laughs> really bad with a teenager. They've just got their BS radar going, looking for every single thing that you say that is wrong. And so we've just got to make sure that we're sort of doing this really collaboratively, saying that there's a lot of bad stuff out there. And even what you see on video is not necessarily right. And I've been duped lots of times myself. And let's just talk about it. Let's move into friendships because friendships are really intense during teenage years, especially for our girls. And FOMO is real. Like it's a, it is a real drive to make sure I belong in whatever's going on. So how can being available 24-7 on a device intensify these relationships in a plus or a negative way? So I think there's this perception that teenagers have because they know that the phone is always there, that if you don't answer me immediately, you don't care about me. So therefore, girls feel that they, in particular, some boys as well, but that I need to have my phone by my side at all times because my friend might need me. And then if you didn't answer in the next sort of two seconds, they would devalue the friendship. And because I'm so concerned about phones in the bedroom at night, it's just a, a really big problem. And I'm always trying to get the kids to sort of leave the phone outside the bedroom from, let's say, nine o'clock at night. The biggest pushback that I get from girls is my friends might need me. And the first sort of 24 to 36 hours or, or maybe 48 hours where they're without their phone by their side at night can be quite difficult for them because they really are genuinely fearful that something important is happening that they're not aware of. First, Facebook. No, really it was. They were there first and then their parents landed on, they got off it really quick. Then Instagram was the platform of choice and it's Snapchat and apparently it's TikTok. TikTok is the number one flavour of most teens. And you know what, there's probably another one around the corner that's taking over that. So as parents and educators, how do we stay abreast of new social media so that we can help them monitor what they use and how they use it? We've got to unpack that question a little bit. So the first thing is if you start saying to your kids all the things that go wrong on Facebook, they'll just, okay, boomer you and um, won't listen to a word that you're saying or you'll end up playing kind of a social media ping pong in terms of, you know, it's this platform, no, it's this platform, and then you're not arguing about the real thing, right? So you want to get down to brass tacks. At the end of the day, they're kind of all the same thing because it's a platform in which other people see what they're doing and in which they can comment on other people's pictures and events and dances on TikTok. And so while it's really important to, I guess, know when they sort of throw a name like Insta or Snap, I wouldn't get bogged down in the semantics of which app they're using. It's all about how beautiful it is that they're being there for their friends, that they're complimenting their friends, that they're saying you look amazing or putting fire signs up. That's really nice. And at the same time, we want to make sure that the mean side doesn't come out and that we're not telling them what to do, but having collaborative conversations with them in which we get to sit and chat about somebody else who maybe trolled somebody and that wasn't great and what the ramifications were and talk it through with them and help them to understand that that kind of behaviour is not only awful and lacks empathy for the person who's the victim of it, but also some, it has some fairly big ramifications for them as well. So it's just working collaboratively with them on behaviour on social media in general rather than being really dictatorial about which app they're allowed to use or not allowed to use because you'll just miss that one and you can't control it anyway. But they're not growing and learning. They're not growing. Yes, they're going to have to make mistakes as we have. We all fell off our bikes and skinned our knees, right? 
making mistakes is an important part of picking up that competency baton. We're there to bounce things off. We're there to help put guardrails around them. But it's not about us controlling them. And I I think that's really important. My son was 13 and a half when he had his first phone and he asked if he could download Instagram. The rules around it were that he would have his account attached to mine and that I would be able to access it. I was laying in bed one evening, 10 o'clock. I looked on his account and I saw a friend request from somebody I didn't recognise. Five minutes later, a message came through from this particular person. There was a picture of my son in the message trail along with uh, comments from this person asking him to take particular photographs of himself. I could see immediately what was happening and I was absolutely mortified. He had no idea that that was possibly a pedophile somewhere on the other side of the world. When I calmed down a little, I explained to him about grooming and the severity of the situation. It certainly opened my eyes to the fact that I'd probably kept him a little bit sheltered from what can go on out there in Cyberworld and that with subsequent children, I need to be a lot more open and a lot more clear about the dangers. Pornography is a click of a button away on any device and it's now not a case of if but when your child will either stumble on it or go looking for it. So what are your suggestions around that protecting our kids? Well, not only from finding it, but seeing this as a fascination that's worth pursuing. Yeah, it's a huge one. So we've got Aussie research out of um, Victoria that suggests that the average Australian boy accidentally comes across porn at age 11 and for girls it's 13. And you can put some cyber controls on their devices or on their laptop and maybe that'll work for a year but at the end of the day you're going to kick that along by a year. But porn is not what you and I saw in our uncle's garage, It was, oh gosh, which no. was a picture of, you know, a fabulous-looking <laughs> yeah. girl, maybe in a pair of underpants. It may have even had some pubic hair. Maybe she did. Um, wow, what's that? <laughs> um, but this is quite graphic stuff that they're seeing and their view of what sex is is becoming really, really distorted because they're being exposed to often quite violent gender stereotyped uh, porn with uh, no issues of consent, very distorted body image, very distorted image of what pleasurable sex is. The things that the women in porn find pleasurable is probably not pleasurable for the vast majority of women. Do we try and stop them from seeing it because it is so harmful and a lot of it is really, really bad stuff? Or do we then just try and have the conversation, which can be a bit weird with an 11-year-old, hey, have you seen any porn? Rather than that, I think it's better to probably have a conversation around. There's heaps of videos that are around that are doctored or stuff that portray stuff that's not really real. If you ever saw anything online that you weren't sure about, let's have a chat about it. And no kid wants to have a a really grisly discussion about sex (laughs) with their parents um, off the bat. Um, But I think that at least start the conversation like that. There is a fantastic website called It's Time We Talk. It's amazing. So that's my, I reckon that is my favourite when it comes to porn and particularly for teens. And it's got like videos of porn stars sort of sitting around going, oh, it's a job. 
this is awful. If anybody really thought this was great sex, they'd like need a psychologist. And the porn stars themselves saying this sort of stuff is really, really helpful. And it takes the the burden off you as the parent having to say that stuff to them. So I I think um, use the great resources that are out there, but accept that you can try and take it off your kid's laptop and they'll go over to a mate's place and just see it all there. So I wouldn't go down that track if I were you. I mean, you can try, but it's just probably not going to help. Now, even though we've acknowledged that there's some really positive things that happen from social media, especially when we're, you know, lifting awareness around things that really matter and we're trying to make cultural changes and all those things, let's be real, it's a bit of a minefield with potential disasters. So even sexting, cyberbullying, grooming, we have to be really mindful of keeping an eye on our kids When is something starting to impact our kids rather than just being something they've seen and they've moved on from? It's hard to know Mm. unless you're really connected to your kid. So if you have that really strong connection with your child and part of that will be active listening, validate what they're saying, value, rather than just lecturing them all the time and telling them stories from your past which they're just Mm. not interested Mm. in, we really need to develop that connection by having it as a two-way street. If you have that, then you will pick up earlier that something's happening. Maggie, what you would not believe and breaks my heart is the number of patients that I have and who anecdotally so many of the psychologists that I refer to and the paediatricians that I refer to and sleep specialists, kids who don't even sit at at a family dinner. They consume their dinner on their own in a bedroom on their device. This is not a one in a million thing. This is super, super common where the the family connection is sort of breaking down to the point where, of course, the kids don't want to have to have the annoyance of having to put their phone away. Mum and dad are so annoying and they ask them these annoying questions or give them an annoying lecture. And the the lack of connectedness leads to more lack of connectedness. So I think... On this journey to protect your child, we need to rebuild your family as their unit of safety, of their unit of where they want to be, of their unit where they're validated and valued and listened to because otherwise it's only their friends that are listening to them and they do that online. That's the best way that you can redevelop that connection and then it, a lot of it's going to stem from there. But we, you want to make yeah. sure you're collaborating, not trying to control them. That's not a, a helpful way because it's just going to see them retreat further and further from you and you're not going to pick up those signs. Yeah, so it's natural for them to pull away. We know that. However, we don't have to leave that pull away. And I, I often say when I'm running my teenage seminars, for goodness sake, tell them you still love them, you know, go and stand in front of them and say, it doesn't matter what happens, I will still love you. And they'll roll their eyes and think you're a crazy person. There's a four-year-old hiding inside every teenager that still needs to know that we love them just as much. I have passwords on all of their devices so they know I can look and check up whenever I like. That tends to keep in the back of their mind that I need to be safe and I need to be nice when I'm online. And we've also had lots and lots of discussions about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what we think is not appropriate, other people might think is appropriate. And they've also all been to sessions at school where they talk about cyber safety and some of the bad stuff that is out there that could happen to them if they're not honest. (laughs) They're at an age where I trust them And I just also listened to how they talked about themselves. So if I had felt that there was some kind of animosity when it came to comparing themselves or doing anything like that to, say, looking at social media, well, then I would pick it up and we would talk about it. So I think all in all, that's why I didn't really set any major boundaries with that. 
It's actually quite a complex challenge because there's so much that they do on the phone. So our approach to that has been really to educate them. So from a very early age, we spent time talking to them about the perils of owning a phone. For instance, I often talk to the kids about when you send something, you lose control of that. So as soon as a piece of information leaves your phone, that information is no longer in your control. And we said the same thing about photos, about things that you say. So for me, it's really about educating them to understand the implications of owning the phone. All right, let's go to that big thing that says, if we ban the phones in the bedroom, does it work? How do you do it? Yes, it does work. <laughs> and getting these kids their sleep back is going to be a really important thing in terms of getting their mental health back. So you're talking more about bedtime, aren't you, really, Ginny, rather than just all the time. So we can say... 100%. 100%. Yep. And you, you need to yep, do it great. with their buy-in, right? You want to make sure that they yes. agree that they need more sleep. Then I think it needs to be a whole of family project where we've all realised we've all just using way too much of our phones. I'm not sleeping that well. It's not going really well. We're all going to go. And as a family, family at nine o'clock, put our phones on the charger in the laundry. I would not pick on any particular kid and just go, you know, your sister's fine, but I'm taking your phone away and you have to give it to me at nine o'clock. No kid is going to happily trust their parent with their phone. The whole family needs to address this together as a family project. Last up, Ginny, the challenges of the state of flow, which means that when we get into a phone and look for something, we're there for ages because we forget to stop, it just keeps flowing, time disappears, they make it hard for every one of us to limit our phone use. So I want our last chat to be about what can we do as grown-ups to support our teens having a better life with their phones if, you know, we're stuck to ours. Yeah, I I really had this epiphany one day when my husband was talking to me and I wasn't making eye contact with him and I had my phone on my lap and I was just "Mm, mm, mm," to him and I realised how rude and dismissive that is to the person I, I adore, I love him, you know. We are really mindless when we're on our phone and the phone is designed to get your eyeballs for as much as possible. The thing is that it it robs our sleep it robs our meaningful connections to others, but there's a time and a place. And when you are with other people that you care about, your phone should not have a seat at the table. And I think that that's something that we can all do. Most of us could be doing a better job of that. And it's really good for your teenagers to see that you're acknowledging that this is tough for you too. And that you'd like... Then you know, perfect. <laughs> we're all going to do this together. We're going to get in the trenches together. I'm going to support you. You're going to support me. You're going to look at each other sometimes going, gosh, I could really look at my phone right now, but I'm not going to. And that's great. You know, we're going to do this as a partnership and they're going to feel both supported and helped rather than judged and punished, which is so important. And I think a last really big tip with that, if you're going to be using your phone for something constructive, that's what we tell our kids with. I'm just making lunch orders or I'm just booking an appointment at the GP or I'm just checking out what time the bus comes back from somewhere. So if they see there's a purpose to our usage and we're able to put it down, and one of the things, best tips I've had from um, Dr Christy Goodwin, who's on our very, very first series, very first podcaster, she said, hide your phone because if you can't see it, you're less likely to pick it up. And I think that's a brilliant tip. And the other one is make sure you turn as many alerts off as possible, because if you can't hear it pinging, 
you can forget it for a time. So they're two really good tips that we can model as well as um, encourage for our teens. So, Jenny, thank you a million for your wonderful common sense and your absolutely fabulous work that you do um, helping parents to understand this crazy world we live in in terms of their health and wellbeing. All right, back at you, Maggie. Thank you so much. Teenage friendships can be intense and there's no break from them in a smartphone world. We can't let these online connections be their only support. Please lean in to all our teens and their problems, validate, value and listen to them. Smartphones don't come with rule books and if they did, your teen wouldn't read it anyway. So it's up to us to help our teens navigate the risks so that they could become responsible digital citizens. Well, most of the time. Can we collaborate with them on their smartphone usage rather than trying to control them? And oh, the biggie, can we lead by example? Banning phones in the bedroom can work and does work, but you need the buy-in of your teen to do that. Address it as kind of a family project where you have the conversation around the benefits first. Try buying some old school alarm clocks, you know, the ones that make a noise to wake them up in the morning, and then really consider charging all the family's phones outside the bedroom when it's time for sleep. It'd be great for everyone. So now we've talked all about teens being glued to their phones. What we didn't talk about was how much the damn things cost. Now for that, head over to The Pineapple Project, which has done a whole series of episodes on how we better manage our money and save ourselves thousands. They even do a whole episode all about phones and how you shouldn't get sucked in to all the expensive upgrades. Huh, I've just saved myself $2,000. I'll probably put that towards buying... Nazim, no, don't buy new things. Okay, fine. No more new stuff. The whole point is, I'm trying to live with less so that I can buy more time for the things that I want to do in my life. So if I want less, I can get by on less and therefore work less. Genius! But I do still need some kind of phone. That's where Christian Sharma comes in. He's a tech journalist and despite that, he doesn't think that I need to buy the newest phone. Phones are getting really good now, right? And so the older model is going to be just as good but it's going to be deeply discounted. You're still going to get pretty much the same features as the newer phone. You might get a slightly better camera, but that's probably the most noticeable difference you'll get. Now you'll find The Pineapple Project on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Parental As Anything, did you know that in Australia, up to one in four pregnancies ends in a miscarriage? Miscarriage is a delicate subject to raise with our kids. So how do we do it in a way that's open and honest but doesn't instill fear in them? For some reason, I can't even remember why, but the miscarriage came up and my son was sitting right beside me and he said, oh, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, well, sometimes when people are pregnant, the baby doesn't survive and that's called a miscarriage. After you, there was another pregnancy and that baby didn't survive. And he just kind of, you know, took that in and moved on. But then that night when he went to bed, he started to cry. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I just feel really sad about the baby. Yep, that's next on Parental as Anything with me, Maggie Dent.